Well, if you have your Bibles, make sure they're open to Psalm 1. So I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Are you happy? Are you happy? Everybody wants to be happy. In fact, I would argue that everything that you and I do in life is because we want to be happy. Right? The problem is that happiness is a fleeting thing. We have it one moment, and then it seems to be gone the next. And some people say, well, the, the issue with happiness is you just need to stop desiring to be happy. Just, just let go of that desire. But I don't know if, if you've tried that or not, but we can't just stop desiring. We are, we are creatures of desire. And so um, we can't just turn it off, that, that hunger for happiness, for contentment. Well, C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian, once famously said, quote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to play or make mud pies in a slum because he doesn't understand or cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So biblically speaking, happiness does exist, but we half-heartedly look for it in the wrong places. Are you making mud pies this morning? I know I've made my fair share of mud pies. Are you fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition? How can we accept God's offer of a holiday at sea of infinite joy? Well, God lays out the way of happiness in Psalm chapter 1. Now, Psalm 1 is not just the first chapter of the book of Psalms, but it is the introduction to the entire Psalms, all 150 chapters, the biggest book in the entire Bible. And so uh, Psalm 1 is what scholars describe as a wisdom psalm, right? The wis- most Psalms typically focus on prayer and praise, but the wisdom psalms resemble the Proverbs, and they give us practical instructions for daily living. And Psalm 1 portrays life as a journey with only two paths, There is the way of God, the way of the righteous, or there is the way of Satan, the way of the wicked. Only two paths. The first one leads to blessed happiness, and the second one leads to death. And every one of us in this room are on one of those two paths. There are no other paths, just those two. So Psalm 1 prompts us to consider which way we are going and what we'll find at the end of the road what lies at the end of the road. There are no commands in Psalm 1, no commands, but its powerful descriptions and uh, metaphors give us much to think about. So in Matthew 7, if you remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, he said, enter by the narrow gates, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So we can be happy if we trust and obey Jesus Christ. In Psalm 1 this morning, we will see four keys to the way of happiness. Four keys to the way of happiness. The first key, avoid the way of sinners. Avoid the way of sinners. Look at verse 1, the first three words of verse 1 in chapter 1 of Psalms with me. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. The first word of Psalm 1 is blessed. Now, 
the Hebrew word is related to God's blessing. This word is different than the normal Hebrew word that is translated blessing. It probably should be translated as happy, as happy. And we often think of being blessed or happy in just the physical, trite sense of having health or wealth or favorable circumstances, and that's going in our favor. But Psalm 1, however, views this, this happiness, this blessing, as a spiritual condition, a deep-seated joy and contentment in God. And the word here is plural, which means it really should be kind of, oh, the happiness of the man, oh, the blessedness of the man. So do you want to be happy and blessed? Well, the text mentions three areas of our lives that we must watch in order to avoid the way of the sinners. The first uh, sub-point here of how do we avoid the way of the sinners is we must first watch your influences. Watch your influences. Look back at verse 1. Oh, blessed is the man, or oh, hap- the happiness of the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So the blessed or happy man is one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The word translated here as counsel refers to the teachings of the world that seem right, that seem to be right, but are in fact opposed to God. So it's deceptive advice. It's, it's inaccurate advice. This bad advice comes from those who are described as wicked, the wicked are ungodly people who've forgotten about God. God is not part of their equation for life. And so one of the most significant ways we are influenced is through our relationships. So Proverbs 13:20 reminds us of this truth. It says, "Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm." Likewise, 1 Corinthians 15:33. Paul says, "Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals." And the J.C. Ryle's classic book, one of my favorites, Thoughts for Young Men, he says this, never make an intimate friend who is not a friend of God. Never be satisfied with the friendship of anyone who will not be useful to your soul, end quote. So to be clear, Ryle and the Bible are not saying that we can have, we have to disassociate from all unbelievers in our lives, right? That's impossible. We can't be out of the world, we're in the world, but we're not to be of it. And even Jesus himself was described as the friend of sinners, right? But we are not Jesus, and even Jesus' closest friends were who? His followers, those who believed in him. And so we have to be careful on who is influencing our lives, who are our closest friends, right? J.C. Ryle again warns us with this very sobering thought. Depend on it, bad company in this life is the sure way to procure worse company in the next, So show me your friends and I'll show you your future, as the common adage says. So are your close friends friends of God? How are you being influenced right now? Who is the biggest influence on you right now? And who are you influencing right now? So avoid the way of sinners by watching your influences. The second thing we must do to avoid the way of sinners is watch your habits. Watch your habits. Look at the next part of verse 1. So not only is the happier, blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor stand in the way of sinners. Now the word stand here communicates a person who is obstinate and stiff-necked, who refuses to budge, refuses to move. And now the way of sinners is their, their way of life, right? Their customs, their manner of living. And the word sinners describes those who habitually rebel against God. They willfully violate his commands. Now, when we habitually give ourselves to sin and we uh, don't fight our sin or repent of our sin, 
right? We lose peace and happiness and contentment. And so our habits over time form our character, who we are. And if our character is compromised, we will not enjoy the happiness of God. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 26, 14, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Always taking pains. So habits are powerful things. I don't know if you know that. Habits are very powerful things. They have deep roots that are not easily removed. Now, Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So one theologian said that habits are like stones that are rolling down a hill. The further they roll down the hill, the harder they are to stop. They become more ungovernable in their course. He says habits like trees are strengthened by age, right? A boy can bend an oak sapling very easily, but give that oak a few hundred years, and a hundred men cannot bend that oak tree. So it is with habits. The older, the stronger. The longer they have held possession, the harder they will be to cast out. Habits are of good or evil are daily strengthening in our hearts. Every day you are either getting nearer to God or farther off. So when was the last time you've examined your habits? What do you do when you get up in the morning? What do you do when you get home from work? What do you do in your free time? Have you considered those things? Are they drawing you in Christ's likeness or are they whittling away at your soul little by little? Right? Avoid the way of sinners by watching your influences and by watching your habits. And the third thing we must watch to avoid the way of sinners is we must watch your attitude. Watch your attitude. Look at the last part of verse 1. So not only is the happy or blessed man to not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So notice the verbs throughout this verse, right? Walk, stand, sit. There's a downward progression. And first you're influenced, then your habits form, and then your conscience is seared and you become hardened in your attitude towards God. Right? In the ancient world, to sit down was to take an authoritative, authoritative position of a teacher. Teachers would teach sitting down. And so this person is not just influenced and in the habits, but now they're a missionary of mischief. They're sitting down telling other people how to live a life opposed to God. They are not content until others are one to their wickedness. Right? Notice the nouns in the verse, the wicked, then the sinners, then scoffers. Again, there's a downward progression Right? The wicked are just ungodly people who have forgotten God. Sinners are those who habitually rebel against God. And the scoffers are those who have suppressed their consciences to such a degree that they are mocking God, they scorn His wisdom, and they lead other people to do the same. So this is the lowest of the low you can get. You're not only content in your own godlessness, but you want everyone around you to reject God as well. So what does this look like to mock God, to scoff at God. Now, we might think of the arrogant atheist right on the streets who's trying to evangelize for his secular views and convert other people to atheism, right? That's an easy arrogant atheist. He's mocking God. But in Galatians 6, 7 through 9, Paul gives us some words that are pretty shocking to us all. Here's what Paul says. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
So we mock God when we sow to our flesh and expect happiness and holiness. We mock God when we sow to our flesh and wonder um, why life is not going as we thought it would. Right? We mock God when a couple engages in sexual activity outside of marriage and they don't think anything's going to happen of that. They're mocking God. When a man schemes his way uh, illegally and unjustly to the top of his company and takes another man's job and finagles his way into a position of advantage, he is mocking God. He is sowing to the flesh. When a woman spreads gossip and rumors about someone she doesn't like in her workplace, she is sowing to the flesh and mocking God, thinking, oh, there's nothing that's going to come of this. I can get away with this without any consequence. Right? Those are all sowing to the flesh. When we cheat on our taxes and don't pay the government what we owe, right, we are sowing to the flesh. We are mocking God. Now, Paul is reminding us that when we reap what we reap, we will, we, what we sow, we will reap. We will reap a harvest based on what we sow. So your sin will find you out. God knows and God will not be mocked. The Puritan Thomas Adams once said, that which a man spits against heaven shall fall back on his own face. So in what areas of your life are you mocking God? In what areas of your life do you have a scornful attitude towards God? When is your, when, where in your life are you a bad influence on other people? You wouldn't want your kids to see you doing that particular thing, right? If we want to be happy and holy, we must sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. The righteous person watches their influences, their habits, and their attitude. So we've seen the first key of the way of happiness is to avoid the way of sinners. The second key of the way of happiness is to absorb the Scriptures. Absorb the Scriptures. Look at verse 2 with me. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So verse 1 is a strong contrast, not only to what the righteous person avoids, but what does the righteous person uh, pursue? What are they attracted to? And it's the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord. The word translated law here is, is better understood as the teaching and instruction of the Lord. It's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's the, the holistic instruction that God has given us for living, his teaching right? The revelation of God's will for us. So this verse provides us with two requirements. If we are to absorb the scriptures, what does that look like? Well, first it means we delight in the scriptures. We delight in the scriptures. Verse 2 says about the righteous man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. The righteous person finds joy and happiness in the word of God. It is his treasure, right? God, the Bible is not God or man's infallible wisdom. It is God's infallible wisdom, right? The Bible is not, um, it is the book of books. There's no book like it, right? You can read many books, but only one book can read you, and that is the Bible. The Bible is inspired. It is God-breathed. It comes from God. The Bible is inerrant. It is free from any error because God is truth. If it's His Word, then it must be true. The Bible is sufficient. It is all that we need for godliness and life. All that we need to believe, all that we need to live is in the Bible, and the Bible is our final authority, as important as creeds and confessions and traditions and churches even are, right? If they stray from Scripture, then we are not to follow, right? Scripture is our supreme authority over all things. We obey Scripture. So if that is what the Bible is, how could we not love it? How could we not treasure it if those things are true? Theologian William Swan Plummer states, he is not a child of God who delights not in the Holy Scriptures, Right? Our relationship to the Bible reveals a lot about our spiritual state. 
right? Listen to how the Bible describes itself. What does the Bible say about itself? Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says these beautiful words. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. What an amazing passage of Scripture. So do you delight in God's Word? Is it is it more valuable to you than money? Is it sweeter to you than, than, than uh, honey? Is it more valuable to you than money? Ask God to increase your love of God's word. May God increase all of our love for his word. Because we will never truly be happy if we are not happy in God's word. Now, if we're to absorb the scriptures, we must not only delight in them, but we must also meditate on the scriptures. That's our second sub-point. We must meditate on the scriptures. Look back at verse 2. Not only is the righteous man delight in the law of the Lord, but he meditates on it day and night. Day and night. So, biblical meditation is the opposite of what we, we think of the word meditation sometimes and we go, ooh, what, what is that about? Right? Eastern meditation is when you, you know, empty your mind and you sit on the floor with your legs crossed and you try to think about nothing. Right? That's not biblical meditation. That's Eastern meditation. Biblical meditation, you're trying to fill your mind with truth. Right? J.I. Packer describes biblical meditation this way. It's the activity of calling to mind, right? an activity, not emptying, doing nothing. The activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and the ways and the purposes and the promises of God. So it's just thinking about God and His Word thinking about it over and over again. And so in a very real sense, what you think about today determines who who you are tomorrow, right? What we dwell on, what we think about, what we put in our minds affects directly who we will become tomorrow. The picture the psalmist paints is that the righteous person is someone who falls asleep thinking about God's Word. They wake up in the morning, the first thing they do, I need to get in God's Word. I need to meditate upon the Lord's Scriptures, right? And so God's Word should never be far from our minds, right? It should always be there just in the background, thinking about God's Word. And so uh, it's important that we keep in mind that the end of meditation is not just to fill our minds with a bunch of facts about God, but it's to fill our minds with truth so that we can live accordingly, that we put it into practice, right? That we live the truth. This is exactly what Joshua 1.8 says. Joshua 1.8, God tells Joshua, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Right? So God literally tells Joshua the same thing as Psalm 1. Meditate on this day and night. Let it never depart from your mouth so that you will do according to what it says. So it's supposed to make a difference in our life. We apply it. So what does it look like to meditate on God's Word? Maybe you're like, I've never really what I would call meditated on the scriptures. What does that look like? Well, it literally just means as you read your Bible during your daily time in the Word, you just maybe a verse or two spoke to you. That you're like, man, that, that's an interesting verse. I've never 
consider that verse, well, just pause and spend a few minutes thinking about that verse. Read it again multiple times. Think about every word in that verse because every single word of, of the Bible is inspired by God, right? Not just the ideas of the Scripture, but every word, every jot and tittle. And so think about that verse. Why is each word in that verse? What, how does it change if that, that word was gone in that verse? And just meditate, think about it over and over again, and then ask yourself some questions, right? Does this verse have a truth that I need to believe? Does this verse have a command that I need to obey? Is there a, an example to follow, a proverb to remember, a promise to hold on to in times of trouble, right? The more time we give ourselves to soak in that verse, the more truth that will, will, that will come out of it, the more things that we'll see that the Holy Spirit will show us as we saturate our mind in that scripture. So do you spend any time meditating on scripture? I'm not talking about eight hours like a monk somewhere in a monastery. I'm just saying, do you spend time in God's word and think about intentionally that verse and how it applies to your life, right? How can you implement meditation into your daily quiet time? My favorite theologian, J.C. Ryle, says this, happy is the man who possesses a Bible, happier still is he who reads it, happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and practice, right? So how much happiness do you want in the Word of God? Well, the more of yourself you give to the Word of God, the happier you can be. So we've seen the first two keys of the way of happiness. We must avoid the way of sinners, and secondly, we must absorb the Scriptures. Well, the third key is we must abide in the Savior. Abide in the Savior. Look at verse 3 with me, please. He, that is the, the happy, the righteous one, he is the, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So notice um, how the psalmist gives a powerful simile, right, a, a type of metaphor of how the righteous person is. He describes them as like a tree, a tree that is planted by water that has fruits and that does not have leaves that wither. And so what does this passage have to do with abiding in the Savior? What is it telling us? Well, first, I think it's telling us to be nourished. Be nourished. Right? Notice the psalmist says the righteous person is like a planted tree. It's planted. The, the, the righteous is not like a wild tree out in nature, um, but it's a, a tree that's been chosen, considered as property, cultivated and secured, and even more than that, the word uh, translated as planted is literally in the Hebrew transplanted. So the, the tree has been taken from some other location and purposely placed somewhere else by another. And so where is this tree planted? In the desert? No, it's planted near streams of water. Not just one stream, but multiple streams of water, right? This is an allusion to the eastern uh, method of cultivation of trees, right? In the desert, you have to have water and nothing will live. And so the, in the ancient Middle East, they would take these trees and plant orchards and have little uh, irrigation canals on both sides of the trees so that they were properly watered and had moisture, right? Artificially, man-made moisture in that sense. And so by artificial means, the trees could have water and could live and thrive. So all of this imagery subtly points to the grace of God as the source of life in the righteous person's in the life of the believer, right? The tree didn't plant itself. The tree did not water itself. The tree did not cultivate itself. It is not the cause of its own success. Neither do sinful people transport ourselves out of this sinful world into the kingdom of heaven, 
right? Salvation is a marvelous work of God's grace. So Charles Spurgeon described the rivers in this verse in these words. He said, the rivers of pardon and the rivers of grace, the rivers of the promise and the rivers of the communion with Christ are never failing sources of supply. So have you been transplanted by God from the soil of this world into the soil of his heavenly kingdom? Are you being continually nourished by Christ, the true rivers of life, who calls himself the waters of life and who gives us eternal life? Right? Only by God's grace is the righteous person righteous. Yet, there is a genuine responsibility for us to appropriate the abundant resources of God, and that results in pro- productivity, right? And that's our next thing, which leads us to our second reality of abiding in the Savior, which is be prosperous. So if we're being nourished, then we'll be prosperous. The psalmist goes on to describe that this transplanted tree uh, yields its fruit in season, in its season. Most commentators take that to mean that this tree's fruit uh, becomes ripe. It bears fruit in season, right? Its leaves do not wither. It's long-lasting. And so, in other words, the righteous person endures and perseveres in this life, and they produce fruit, right? The, the, the psalmist summarizes all this, and he says, and all that he does, he prospers. Now, we might read that verse out of context and think, that sounds like the prosperity gospel, and all that he does, he prospers. Does that mean like the prosperity gospel teaches that if you just trust God, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, all of your circumstances in life will go well for you, and it's just going to be all dandy circumstance-wise. I don't think that's what this is saying, nor does the rest of Scripture say that's how life is. What I think he's saying is that spiritual vitality, regardless of what is happening, there can be a deep-seated joy and a deep-seated happiness in God that we can have as a believer, even in this sinful world, with all of its brokenness right? So God cares most about our soul's prosperity. Even when our body may be breaking, He cares about our soul's well-being. How is our soul? And so the fruit that the righteous person bears is not Lamborghinis and riches, but love and righteousness. So does that describe your life, right? Is your soul watered by the sacred scripture? Does your life bear fruit of faith and the leaves of actions that are pleasing to God? Is there fruit, right? If there's true faith, there will be fruit. The, the, the tree will bear fruit and have leaves and fruit. So after describing this nourished and prosperous life of the righteous, the psalmist then turns his attention to the wicked. And look at verse 4. He describes the wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So everything that the righteous person is, the wicked is not. Right? The wicked Uh, have not been transplanted. The wicked do not have streams of water nourishing them. The wicked do not bear fruit in season. Their leaves wither. They don't stay alive. They do not prosper. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, what is chaff? Right, chaff, if anyone's been a farmer, been around farms, I have relatives up in the Dakotas, and they have, you know, combines, and they would harvest the, the, um, the fruit, the wheat, the whatever crop they were harvesting, and all the junk that shoots out the back of the combine is the chaff, right? It's the worthless husks, the empty husk after the valuable kernel of the, of the fruit has been harvested, right? The, the chaff is what's left. It's intrinsically worthless. It's dead. It's unserviceable. It's without substance. It's carried away easily by the wind. It is nothing. So what is the essential difference between the righteous and the wicked, right? What's the fundamental difference? 
Well, listen to what Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8 says. It kind of carries this imagery perfectly. It says, the Lord says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Wow. But then he continues, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it's not, is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruits. Wow, what a similar picture. And what's the difference? The trust in the Lord. The wicked trust in themselves. The wicked trust in man. The righteous trust in God. Right? That doesn't mean the heat won't come. That doesn't mean that there won't be a, a drought. But yet the righteous tree perseveres. And it, it remains. It re- endures by the sustaining rivers of grace from God Almighty himself. So are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in him? You may be in a desert. The temperature may be getting hotter. But the Lord has rivers of grace for you. You can endure. So we have seen the first three keys of the way of happiness. Avoid the way of sinners, absorb the scriptures, and abide in the Savior. The fourth and final key is anticipate the solution. Anticipate the solution. And there are two ways that we anticipate the solution. We re- first, we recognize that the wicked will not stand. They recognize that the wicked will not stand. Look at verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the psalmist says, therefore, and as the joke is, anytime you read the word therefore, you need to ask why is the therefore is therefore. And so the therefore refers back to the fact that the wicked are like chaff. They can't last. They're, they're easily blown away. Because of that, they will not endure the, the judgment of God. Right? There's nothing to them. They will not be able to stand. In this world, the, rick, the wicked seem to be prosperous. Everything comes easy for them. They're healthy and wealthy, and they have everything they would ever imagine they'd want. It, everything works for them. Their plans succeed. It seems like they get away with uh, injustice and unrighteousness. But this verse says that they will not stand. And what does the stand mean? What does it mean they don't stand? It means to be able to endure or remain or survive under judgment. They will not remain or survive under judgment, the judgment of God, right? When God comes to judge sinners, they will not endure it. And nor will they be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. They will not. And verse 6 says the end result of their path, where is the, the path of the wicked lead? It ends in destruction. They will perish, is what it says. So laying up treasures on earth, it may make us happy for a little while, but it will not last, Right? Foolish friendships on earth may make us happy for a little while, but it will not last. Achievements and appearances, all these things may satisfy us for a while, but it will not last. We think that these things and more will bring us happiness, and they may bring us happiness for a moment, but sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Right? It never turns out like you thought it was going to do. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is way of death, right? And it seemed right, but it ends in death. God's way is the only way that leads to true happiness and eternal life. Every other way leads to death. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes judgment. 
Right? All of us will stand before God one day, and we will be judged. Are you ready to be judged by God? Apart from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not stand. You will not bear up the wrath of God. So to anticipate the solution from the problem of the wicked that seem to be, they seem to be prospering in this life, we must recognize that the wicked will not stand. They will not. And then secondly, and finally, rest because the righteous are known. Rest because the righteous are known. Look back at verse 6. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So this, when the verse says that the Lord knows, that doesn't just mean he's mentally aware of who you are and what's happening. It, it means it, there's an intimate relationship and a, a level of care that he knows, right? It's the same word that the book of Genesis used to describe Adam and Eve's relationship, that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and birth, gave birth to a son. So there's a deep level of knowledge and love and commitment in that kind of knowing. And so Spurgeon described this, this relationship that God has with his people. He said, walk with God, and you cannot mistake the road. You have infallible wisdom to direct you, permanent love to comfort you, and eternal power to defend you. So despite all that's happening in this world around you, that's the loving care that God has for his children, that he knows, he cares. So following Christ does not mean that life will be easy. It does not mean, in fact, it might get a lot harder. Uh, but following Christ is the highway to happiness, right? Your circumstances may be less than ideal. You might not have chosen them for yourself. Yet God is orchestrating your life in such a way for your eternal happiness, your eternal good, and your infinite joy. You may not understand all of it right now, but God is working for your good. So those who trust in Jesus Christ will stand clothed in his righteousness at the day of judgment. And all the things that are barriers to our happiness today right, our remaining sin, our sickness, death, all the things that are in the world that are not pleasing to God, one day all those things will be gone. One day all those things will be dealt with, and we will truly enter into bliss without any stain of sin, any kind of barrier to our happiness at all, right? So do you know Jesus Christ? More importantly, does Christ know you? And if you're a child of God, then take comfort. No matter what is happening in your life, God knows and is working for your good and your happiness. So many early Christians read this psalm, like Augustine and Jerome, and they saw this verse is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus, the truly righteous one, right, who lived out this verse perfectly. He was the friend of sinners, but he avoided the way of sinners, right? He um, delighted and meditated on his Father's Word. He said that it was his food to eat, right? He meditated on it day and night. And John 15 tells us that Jesus is the true vine, that those who are branches of Christ and abiding in Christ will bear fruit, much fruit. And Jesus says in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that, you might, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus was concerned about his disciples not only having joy, but the joy of Christ in them, right? One of the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is joy. If we have the Holy Spirit, there's joy in us. So are you happy? Are you joyful in Christ and the Lord? What are you looking towards to give you happiness? Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we have been an unhappy people by nature, grumbling, complaining, looking everywhere in the world for happiness except for the one who can give it to us in him, right? We, we look to things, we, we chase idols, we look to our jobs and other things that are good gifts of God, but we make them the ultimate thing and they rob us of happiness because they cannot bear the weight 
of our desires of being happy, right? But Jesus Christ came, the truly righteous one, and he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died, and he rose to the, from the grave, and he sits now at the right hand of God the Father, right? And he lived a joyful, obedient life that we often do not. And he commands all of us everywhere to repent and believe in him for infinite joy, infinite joy, right? Everyone wants to be happy. God is the happiest being in the universe. No one is more happy than God, right? No one. He is happiness itself. He is joy himself. And so the problem is we're looking in all the wrong places, right? Happiness and holiness go hand in hand with God, with being in relationship with God. God wants us to be happy too. We just have to come to him for it. And so the problem is we truly cannot be happy apart from God. And so we'd rather have our mud pies than our beach vacation. And so we've got to come to the realization, just like the prodigal son, that I'm, I'm never going to be happy in this pigsty, eating this pig food. I need to go back to the Father. And so have you come to the Father? The old hymn is correct when it says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So are you on the way of happiness. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you this morning and we admit, God, we want to be happy. Every person alive wants to be happy, have joy, to be content in life. And God, it's a struggle in this sinful world, Lord, with our sinful state. Lord, we often go to other sources for our happiness. We look to sin and even good gifts that you've given us, but cannot bear the weight of our ultimate source of happiness. And God, we're lost. We're, we're discontent. We're, we're complainers. We're grumblers. God, help us to be reminded the truth that apart from you, God, we can never truly be happy. And so it would help us to return to you, to come back to you. Lord, if there's someone who has never put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they, that they would see that Jesus wants their eternal joy. God, you prayed that your disciples would have not only just joy, but the joy of God in them, the joy of Christ in them, that we would be overflowing with joy. And so, God, you are not a, a cosmic killjoy. You are anything but that. You want us to have ultimate joy, and that can only be found in you. And so, Lord, I pray that we are we're delighting in your word, and we're avoiding the way of, of sinners, that we're abiding in Christ, that we're being nourished by the Holy Spirit. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so I pray that you are just filling us with yourself. And God, that we would anticipate the solution that while we can truly be happy in this life, God, ultimate bliss will be when we're with you in the new heavens and new earth and sin and death and temptation and all of that thing, all of that is gone. And there is truly nothing but joy in your presence, God. With no distractions, no barriers, no idols, no, dis no temptations. And so Lord, we look forward to that day that even now when we're going through hard times, God, our joy will be complete one day in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would comfort those who are going through hard times, that you, we would be able to rejoice even while we're suffering. Lord, I pray for those who are going through easier times, God, that they would reach out to love and, and cherish those who are, are struggling. And God, just remember, help us to remember that you are enough. God, that as we read in the early church, Lord, people had their homes destroyed, things stolen, and they rejoiced to suffer for the sake of Christ. So that kind of joy, God, is supernatural, and I pray that we would have that kind of joy, that we would have joy that just is inexplicable. It doesn't make sense from a worldly perspective because we, we know God and you dwell in us. And so may that be true of us 
God. We ask that would be true. We ask these things for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.